Well, good morning. It was uh, last September, if you can believe it, that we began our series in the book of Ephesians. And so here we are 32 Sundays later, and uh, we'll be wrapping it up this morning. And I hope that you have been blessed by it like I know that, that I have. Ephesians really is just an amazing, amazing letter. And it's amazing for a variety of reasons, but maybe none more so than the fact that it is just a beautiful combination of Christian theology and Christian practice. It is a, it, it, there's just a perfect symmetry in the book of what we call orthodoxy, what we are to believe, and orthopraxy, how we are to live, how we are to practice our faith. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Paul's final words to the church there. And it's only about three verses, so it's not going to take very long. It's four verses. But then what we're going to do with the rest of our time is we're going to kind of look back and walk through the book, looking at five of the key truths that Paul has unpacked for us over the course of this letter and over the course of this study. So starting in verse 21, we come to Paul's farewell, and this is what he says. He says, But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. So one thing you may recall is that Paul is writing the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in in modern-day Turkey, and it's a place where Paul had planted a church on one of his journeys in the book of Acts, and he spent three years in Ephesus, longer than he was at any other city in any of his other journeys. So this is a city that is very special to Paul. These are people that are very special to Paul, and vice versa. He is very special to them, and they are concerned about him. And they're concerned about him for good reason, because he is writing this letter in the early 60s, from a Roman imprisonment. He's in house arrest and he's awaiting trial before the emperor Nero. And so what Paul does is he writes this letter to the church and he closes by saying, Tychicus, tell them about what's going on here. Let them know God is giving me fruitful ministry here in Rome. God's doing a mighty work and please do it so that their hearts might be comforted. One thing that people often miss when it comes to the apostle Paul is how relational he was. It's extremely relational. We kind of think of Paul as this no-nonsense, hard-charging, church-planting, theological and intellectual giant. And all those are absolutely true. But at the core of of who Paul was, was a guy who loved to be in relationship and loved to minister to people. And to the churches and to the flock that God had given him. And so this love that existed between the church in Ephesus and the Apostle Paul is sweet. But it's not necessarily surprising. And it should not be an anomaly because that is the type of love that all Christians are called to. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself in his ministry to the disciples in John chapter 13 says that love amongst the brethren is to be the, 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 the decisive description, the identifying mark of the believer. In verse 34 of John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another, as even I have loved you, you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this love is supposed to characterize God's people and God's church. And I I can stand up here and honestly say that one of the things that makes Wayside Chapel such a special place is the way that this church and people in this church minister to one another. The way that people in this church rally around and care for one another. And I experienced it when I was just an attender, and I've experienced it as a pastor. I know when Victoria and I had a miscarriage, and we were heartbroken over that, and how many people came and rallied around us and prayed for us and cared for us. And time and time again, whether it be a sickness or a death or a long hospital visit or the birth of a child, or financial problems, or marital issues. This church rallies around one another and cares for one another. And we are certainly not perfect. And people certainly fall through the cracks. But I can honestly say it is special. And I get to see it from behind the scenes and see how often it goes on and how often the people in this place show up and minister to one another. And this is the church working as it should. And so I just want to encourage you guys to keep walking in that love. This is what Paul says to the Galatians in in chapter 6 towards the end of his letter. He says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers especially to those. Our vision statement is we are community rooted in the word, but the reality is, biblically speaking, we are much bigger than just a community. We are a family. And we are to love one another. And when we do that well, we glorify God. God is delighted in that, and and God is revealed through that. And that is a special thing. Finally, Paul comes to verses 23 and 24 where he closes the letter down with these words. He says, Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So Paul closes by exhorting the church there to walk in love, to walk in faith, to walk in peace, to walk in grace. And then not only that, he affirms to them who is the source of those things. Where do those things come from? He says they come from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then as you connect that to passages like Galatians 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, we've come to find that all these things find their source in God. And Paul reminds the church that God is the source of all good gifts, including the gift of salvation. A gift that comes by grace, his unmerited favor, and a gift that their response to him should be to love him with an incorruptible love as his church. And with that, Paul signs off, and the book of Ephesians comes to a close. But as I mentioned earlier, though Paul's letter to Ephesus comes to a conclusion, my sermon is not at this point in time. No uh, 10-minute homilies at Wayside. Y'all know better than that. I got a lot more to say. So what I want to do is I want to kind of just look back, starting in chapter 1, 
And we're, and we're going to track through five essential truths from the book of Ephesians. And the first one, which we find at the very beginning, in chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2, is this. It's that salvation is by grace and it's accomplished by God. Salvation is by grace and it's accomplished by God. Right away, from the very jump, Paul affirms to the Ephesians that salvation is a result of God's grace and it is Trinitarian in nature. It is a result of the ministry of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, he talks about the Father who planned our salvation in eternity past as he predestined us in love. And then he talks about God the Son who provided our salvation through the cross and the resurrection and the greatest act of love. And then he speaks to God the Spirit who seals our salvation, forever keeping us in God's love from now and forevermore as he applies the work of Christ to us. And then as we come into chapter 2, he, he rounds it out, he affirms this, and he kind of brings it to a head in verses 8 and 9, where he writes this, these great verses that you've heard before. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is accomplished by God. And this truth is both foundational and fundamental to our salvation and to our understanding of who God is. Just who he is and what he is like. And after Paul has shown that salvation is by grace and accomplished by God, he now moves into something else. In chapter 2, he talks about how now this salvation is available to all. It's available to all. And this leads us to our second truth which is the church is the multi-ethnic family of God united in Christ. The church is the multi-ethnic family of God united in Christ. The church is not defined by a building. You don't go to church per se at a location. The church is comprised of God's people. Those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Those who have been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit as the body of Christ and are united in him forever. That is the church. And so after focusing on God's work of salvation, in the second half of 2 and into chapter 3, he talks about one of the results of that work. One of the results of the gospel is that God through Christ has broken down the barriers He's broken down the walls that divided people. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were formerly far off, the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, so that in himself... He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So whereas Jews and Gentiles were once divided culturally and ethnically and, and religiously and even geographically through the cross and the resurrection, God has bridged that gap and he has brought reconciliation. And now things are not dependent upon the, the, the things that divided like 
circumcision or maintaining the dietary restrictions or observing the Sabbath, those are removed and what's put in its place is faith in the risen Lord for the forgiveness of sin. And this gospel, centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, became a gospel that therefore could take root anywhere and take root everywhere. It could take root anywhere and it could take root everywhere and that's exactly what happened. We saw that in the book of Acts as it left Israel and went across the Roman Empire into Europe and spread. And we see that even to this day. I recently came across a couple of studies that were looking at global religion. One by Pew Research and another one by the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And both of their findings of these surveys were fascinating. For one... There are Christians all over the world, all over the world. Christianity is by far the most diverse religion globally. It's not even close. Of the 232 countries surveyed in this study, 157 of them had Christian majorities. The next closest was Islam with 49. And of those individuals who identified as Christian, and granted, we can't see into somebody's heart We don't know for sure, and especially some of the places in Europe where they are born into a denomination they might identify as Christian. So we can't say this for certain, but of the 2.2 billion Christians approximately in the world, roughly 13% live in North America. That's it. 24% are in Latin America. 25% in Europe. 24% in Africa and 13% in the Pacific, in the Asia-Pacific region. So the body of Christ is big, and it's global, and it's diverse, and it's beautiful. And though we here at home sometimes feel like, you know, the United States is, is trending maybe more secular, and it's trending more agnostic or atheistic, the reality is that Christianity is, gro- is growing globally. Especially in places like Latin America, Sub-Sahara Africa, and China. According to one of the studies, in 1970, there were an estimated 11 million Christians in Japan, China, and the Koreas total. That made up 1% of the total population. In 2020, the estimate is that there will be over 170 million Christians in those three countries, making up roughly 10 to 11% of the population. It is likely in our lifetime there will come Sundays where there are more people going to church in China than the U.S. if things trend as they've been trending. And the numbers in Africa are even more astounding. 100 years ago, the estimated number of Christians in Africa was 12 million, 9% of the continent's population. By 2020, the estimate is that there will be over 630 million believers in Africa, roughly 50% of the continent's population. And, and, And here's my point. Through the gospel... Through the cross and the resurrection, salvation kind of went forth and it it crossed uh, state lines, so to speak. It crossed state lines. And it went forth to both the Jew and the Gentile, to the male and the female. 
to the slave and the freeman. And as God had told Abraham all the way back in Genesis that from his seed would come one who would bless all the families of the earth. Jesus fulfills that. That promise has come to fruition in Jesus Christ as the son of David, the Jewish Messiah, who came to save Israel and is coming again, but is to save anyone who will believe upon his name across state lines. And so the gospel is a message that can take root anywhere and take root everywhere and is available to all, to you, to me, to our neighbors, and to our friends around the world. For the church is the multi-ethnic family of God united in Christ. And this brings us to our third truth, which begins at chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians and is the real pivot point of the entire letter. So if you think of the first three chapters, in, that, in those, Paul emphasizes doctrine. He places a great emphasis on doctrine, especially the doctrines of salvation and the church. And then as you come to chapters 4 through 6, he's going to transition and focus more on devotion and how we live out those truths in a practical sense. He's going to talk about how we are to live out our faith in the church and in the family and in the workplace and in all of society. So chapters 1 through 3 are who we are in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 is how we are to live for Christ. And part of living for Christ comes through recognizing the gift and the opportunity and the responsibility we have to live lives that glorify Him. And this brings us to point number 3, which, are, which is Christians are to live worthy of their calling. Christians are to live lives worthy of their calling. And we see this in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, literally, in prison, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you, I am begging you, I am imploring you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. And walk is a, is a euphemism here for continuous living. Paul is saying, live your life in view of what God has done for you. Live your life worthy of the calling by which you have been called. And look, Paul is not changing his tune in regards to salvation being by grace. He's merely proclaiming the desired result of that salvation, which is Ephesians 5.1, that we would be imitators of God, that we would emulate Christ in action, in thought, in deed. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is a gift, not as a result of works. And yet in the following verse, in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells the church, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. So salvation is a work of God from beginning to end, but that does not mean that the Christian life is a passive one. It does not mean we just sit around and wait for things to happen. We have a role to play. And our lives are not what earns our salvation, but they are a response to God's gift of salvation. 
without question. Through the years, I've been impacted greatly by the ministry of uh, an Indian-born Christian apologist named Ravi Zacharias. And I remember going to see him one time at a, uh, he was speaking in Austin. I went with my buddy Matt Martin, and we ended up sitting right behind him. I could almost reach out and touch him. We just stared at his beautiful head of like white hair, just thinking about what was going on in his brain. And Zacharias one time was asked, what has been the hardest thing to defend? What is the hardest thing to defend when it comes to Christianity? This is a guy who's been doing Christian apologetics for 40 years. And when he was asked what is the most difficult thing, he responded by saying, the hardest thing to defend is why so many Christians look nothing like Christ. He said, the hardest thing to defend is why so many Christians look nothing like their Christ. And look, we know that we are a flawed people. Amen? We know that Christians are flawed people. We know that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. We are aware of that. And yet God calls us to live a life worthy of our calling. And this is not just found in the Apostle Paul's writings. We see this with our brother, the Apostle Peter. Chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We have received a holy calling from a holy God who is calling us into lives of holiness. That's what he's called us to. And the desire to do whatever it takes to walk in obedience to that calling is a worthy endeavor. It's a worthy endeavor. Now, some may be sitting out there thinking, now, Michael, it sounds like you're, you're starting to trend towards legalism. So, I mean, it sounds like you're putting a lot of rules out there and a lot of pressure on me to follow them. So, so let me speak to that for just a second. When you think of legalism, it typically involves one of two things. One, it involves you thinking that somehow your behavior can merit righteousness before God. That somehow through just observing rules and refraining from bad behaviors, you can be righteous before a holy God. But that's not true. One of the core aspects of the gospel, one of the core truths is this, is that the only righteousness that is good enough for God is the righteousness of God. The only righteousness that is good enough for God is the righteousness of God. And no one can achieve that standard of righteousness on their own. The irony of legalism is it is a low view of the holiness of God because you think that you can somehow attain it or you can somehow add to it through your own merit. And the reality is that some people live lives better than others. But it's analogous to a, like a high jump competition to the moon, right? I mean, Kawhi may get me by like one inch, maybe, <laughs> on a bad day for me, right? But the dude's still 230,000 miles short of the moon. 
He's nowhere near. He's nowhere near. It is the only righteousness good enough for God is the righteousness of God. And if that is true, then somehow we need the righteousness of God if we are to be made right with God. We need the righteousness of God to stand before and be made right with him. And praise Jesus that that is what he has given us. Because by faith in him, the one and only God-man who has attained the righteousness of God, by faith in Jesus, his righteousness is given to us. We become related to him by faith. And we become his heir. We, we receive his righteousness like a rich dad giving his earnings and giving his estate to a son, though they did nothing to earn it. And we stand before a holy God with the righteousness of God and are vindicated. We are justified before God through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might, be, we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's this cosmic transaction that takes place where our sin is given, is nailed to the cross with Jesus. The theological word is imputed. It is imputed to Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us by faith. And we are justified with his perfect righteousness. And so I cannot add to the righteousness of God through works because you can't add to perfection. Nor can I attain the righteousness of God through works because I mess up. I need a substitute who is perfect. I need the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. And at the end of the day, what legalism says is this. I don't need Jesus because I've got me. I don't need Jesus because I've got me. And that is tragic. And so that is one deadly form of legalism. Another one that's a little bit more subtle, but still devastating, appears when, and this is oftentimes, in my experience, well-meaning Christians. They take something that they are convicted about, and they apply it to everyone as if it's God's law. And if you do not obey their conviction... You are not walking in obedience. You're not being a good Christian, if you're even a Christian at all. And so let me give you a little illustration that might that flesh this out a little bit better. Let's say you or somebody you know has struggled with looking at inappropriate stuff on their phone. And so they become convicted of this, they repent, they get counseling, and they conclude that for them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which they've been called, they're going to take some drastic steps, and they're going to remove internet from their smartphone. They're going to get rid of, I know it's crazy, I know, it's nuts. As I mentioned earlier, that is not legalism. That is obedience. That is pursuing personal holiness. That's not you being rule-obsessed and forsaking your freedom in Christ. That's you using your freedom in Christ to walk in victory. That's you saying that this is an issue for me, and the inconvenience of losing the Internet on my phone pales in comparison to the blessing of walking in intimacy with God. Now, where legalism creeps in 
is when you start to tell everyone else, you need to get rid of internet on your phone. You need to get rid of it. And you apply that standard to them as though they needed to obey your conviction. And we cannot take our personal convictions and apply them to others as God's law. And we can't take obedience to God's law and make it a requirement for salvation. Both of those get us off the gospel track, so to speak. No, how, no matter how well-meaning it might be, this approach is burdensome at best. And it distorts the gospel at worst. And we end up adding things to the gospel. Oftentimes unknowingly. And the gospel becomes no longer salvation by grace through faith, but salvation by grace plus works. Salvation by grace plus appropriate behavior modifications. Salvation by grace plus adherence to all sacraments. And we add things to the gospel, and thus you change the gospel. And a changed gospel is no gospel at all. It is by grace we are saved. It is by grace we have received a holy calling. It's not a burden, it's a blessing. It's by his grace. And it is by grace that we are led by the very spirit of God as we seek to live a life worthy of the calling by which we have been called. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul reminds us That we are to live these lives not in hopes of being saved, but as a result of being saved. As a result. And this brings us to our fourth truth, which is in chapter 5, which is that the family is designed by God. The family is designed by God. We spent quite a bit of time looking at God's design for the relationship between a husband and a wife. And then we spend a while looking at God's design for the relationship between a parent and the child. And one of the things we saw over and over again is that God's design for the family involves sacrificial love and godly submission. It involves sacrificial love and godly submission. Wives are told to submit to their husbands. And in doing so, they give up authority. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And in doing so, they sacrifice their very lives. Children are told to be obedient and honor their parents, sacrificing autonomy. And all are called to submit to Jesus, putting to death the flesh and instead practicing a selfless sacrifice. And when we do this, what we come to see is that one of the keys to being a successful family is in the recognition that it's not about you. It's not about you. I, um, I saw an interview with Coach Pop not too long ago. I'm on a Spurs kick. Go figure. And uh, I saw an interview with Coach Pop, and, and they were just saying, Pop, you get guys who are castaways. They come in. They be a part of the Spurs system, and they flourish. What do you look for when you look for these potential Spurs players? And Pop's reply was this. We want players who've gotten over themselves. So we look for players who have gotten over themselves. Whether you are a father, a mother, or child, there's a play, there's a time you got to get over yourself and recognize that the family is not there for your pleasure. They're not there for your pleasure. 
It's not about your independence or your authority or your rank or your right to certain things or what you think you're entitled to. Rather, it's about giving up on what you think you deserve and giving in to God's design, which is based on what you can give. What you can give. And as you give of yourself, you begin to understand that this self-giving love is exactly how God created you. It's what he created you for. And as you walk in this self-giving love, your family flourishes because it's walking within God's design. And so we've looked at salvation is by grace and by God. The church is the multi-ethnic family of God united in Christ. That the Christian is to live a life worthy of the calling of God. That the family is designed by God. And lastly, as we come to chapter 6 of Ephesians, and as we looked at last week, Christians are to put on the armor of God. Christians are to put on the armor of God. Because as Paul makes clear, there will be attacks. There will be attacks and opposition to the people of God. And so we need to put on our armor. It says this in Ephesians 6, verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. As I was reading this, I kind of thought back in my life to middle school. It all goes back to middle school. When uh, paintball, paintballing became all the rage. Everybody was going paintballing. And we had a place right by Clark High School called Grandpa's Paintball. And so one Friday in middle school, I decided, well, I'm going to go play paintball with my buddies. And I didn't know anything about it. I did not grow up in a hunting family. We shot water pistols in the pool. I was about the extent of it. But I was like, I'm going to go. And so I wore a sleeveless shirt. Show off my seventh grade guns and uh, I wore like athletic shorts. I'm like, it's a, it's a paint, it's a little plastic ball. How hard can it be? And so I go play, and the first game I play in, we, we win. And I didn't get shot. This was like a good thing. But in the course of that game, we defeated a team that had the local legend of Grandpa's paintball on it. A guy in high school with a few screws loose. That everybody called Sarge. I think that gives you a little insight into this guy, right? They called him Sarge. And so I was the last one on our team that won. And, and he, got, he was the last one to get shot. And so I'm walking out. And I go, yeah! Like right in front of him. Old Sarge was not impressed. And with no one around, that dude in cold blood shot me in the neck. Two times. I wanted to scream. I mean, my eyes f- filled up with tears and anger and also in, in pain because they actually do hurt. And the rest of the night was just a lesson. The rest of the night was just a lesson in being unprepared for battle. I was shot up every single game. And when I arrived at home, I mean, I just I looked awful. Just looked like someone jumped me on the street. And I went back and I played at Grandpa's again, but I never wore a T-shirt. 
and I never wore shorts. Whether it was 95 degrees or 35 degrees, I was layered up. I even had like a grandpa's turtleneck that I wore because I wasn't going to get shot in the neck if old Sarge came after me again. You see, I needed to defend myself with anything and everything I had at my disposal. I had been injured. I had experienced the pain of being unprepared and unprotected. And I said, I am not going to let that happen again. And so many Christians fail to realize they're in a battle. They're oblivious. Screw tape letter speaks to that. They're distracted in things that don't matter, but they end up in the same place of destruction. And so God tells us to put on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of, of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And lastly, Paul emphasizes, don't just put on the armor, cover it with prayer. Cover it with prayer. And this is where he closes in the prayer. He asked the church there, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. One of the great ways that the church can prepare for the attacks of the enemy and live lives of victory is through the power of prayer. Prayer. 